Our chronological look at the career of Carol Kane continues on Praising Kane with Woody Allen's Annie Hall. Praising Kane. I'm your esteemed host and guy, Liam O'Donnell. And with me, as always, is my salacious tennis companion, Doug Tilly. Doug, how is life right now? Pretty bad, Liam. <laughs> yeah, man, I feel you. I mean, it's okay. I mean, it, I, I'm, I'm really speaking for the world as a whole rather than myself. Things are fine in the Tilly household. I recently got my first uh, shot, which is terrific. Sure, um, sure. I feel I feel ten feet tall, Liam, uh, which is actually only a slight uh, improvement over what I was previously. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, it's the world is in some ways heading in a better direction, and in some ways not. And I guess that will always be my response to how life is right now. Yeah, I don't love the idea that like as we're all getting our vaccines, uh, India is basically being decimated and yeah. um, mm-hmm. being denied access to. You know, medicine that could help them out for what reason again? So some company can make money. It's pretty fucked. Speaking of things that are pretty fucked on this episode, uh, <laughs> we're, we're talking about Woody Allen's Annie Hall. And um, I, I think we can pull back the curtain a little bit here, Doug. Pull it um, all the way back, Liam. We have been putting this episode off for a very long time. I'm not yes. suggesting that our audience necessarily pays attention to our order, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure people just like the show and they're willing to go with Do the they? flow. <laughs> whatever we, the people who listen enjoy the show and they're willing to go with the flow, whatever we want to cover. But if they were tracking our order, they might notice the gap between Carol Kane's has been ex- exceedingly long this time yeah why why is that doug why have we been waiting so long to do this particular episode well uh you might not be aware of this liam but uh recently there's been a little talk in the news about this woody allen fella that you've heard about this i know Uh, what 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 could it possibly be (laughs) apparently he's a pedophile uh and uh there was a big documentary about it that was recently released we felt particularly uncomfortable with the idea of recording an episode devoted to a woody allen film uh while that documentary was still ongoing uh, i think we both feel still very uncomfortable about the idea of uh linking our name to something that could be interpreted as promoting woody allen and i think that's a fairly reasonable thing and and let's be very clear right up the at the top of the show uh both liam and i believe the documentary uh, and we believe that woody allen is a pedophile and that uh in any celebration of his work uh, is uh, is a reflection of us in some way, a negative mm-hmm. reflection of us. Mm-hmm. So we're, we want to be very careful in how we talk about this. However, and believe me, I don't know if Liam and I actually agree on this, I do think it's important for us to talk about Andy Hall in the context of Carol Kane's career because it was a very important film for her. It's one of the films that's most connected with her, even though she doesn't have a particularly large part in it, uh, simply because Andy Hall, at the time of its release, was a sensation. And it was, you know, a... a, a critical moment in the history of romantic comedy and comedy films in general and it was a massive award winner and is generally considered by many people Woody Allen's greatest film so it is a film that it's difficult just to leave out and I would feel bad about it if only for us not be able to make this particular statement if we didn't at least 
talk about it. So Liam and I were actually messaging back and forth last night. Liam felt very conflicted about the idea of even recording this episode. And so I have agreed that if you, listener, are upset in any way about us covering Andy Hall, that I will take the brunt <laughs> of your anger and frustration. It is my fault. If it was up to Liam, we would not be talking about Andy Hall. I mean, I do think it would just be a badass thing to say, yeah, she was in Annie Hall, and then just move on. I will say, I, I'm not going to completely disown this. I am slightly excited to express a feeling I have about Annie Hall, which is that not only is it difficult to enjoy films made by uh, a pedophile who um, also has done a bunch of other stuff that I'm not sure I'm comfortable with. Uh, granted, I would say even his marriage might be connected to pedophilia, depending on what age they actually started getting together. But even if you don't believe the accusations, I think his relationship with Sun Yi is in, in and of itself enough reason to feel uncomfortable with him as an artist. But I also think the movie is bad. And so I'm excited to talk about it with you, even as I'm feel trepidation to talk about it with you because I am very much also like I think the seeds of him not being a very good person are in his art and I think that will be interesting to talk about but yeah I I do feel a little bit conflicted and if a podcast I like decided to go hey we're skipping this because fuck him I would respect that I would respect mm -hmm. it a lot and if someone is listening to this thinking I'm listening to this but I'm a little bummed that they're doing it I hear you on that but I also think Doug has a point even if I don't entirely agree all the way with it it is true that this is a podcast not about Woody Allen or about films in general this particular uh, aspect of Cinema Smorgasbord it is about Carol Kane and this is important for her career and in what extent are we disrespecting her if we don't talk about it I don't necessarily feel like we owe her anything, actually, but uh, it, it <laughs> wouldn't be telling the full story. So I'm willing to go along with this thing, even though part of me is like, if Carol Kane straight up asked me, I'd be like, hey, I love you, but fuck that movie. That's just literally what I would say. And that might not feel great for her, but that's who I am. So whatever. Um, that being said, I do think we have an interesting opportunity here to talk about the conflict we feel, because even though I think that um, in some ways Woody Allen is overrated, especially his... Uh, his classic material, he's made so many movies that if someone were to say every Woody Allen movie is bad, that's probably not true. Because when you've made hundreds of movies, some of them at least are going to be pretty good, right? Like there's got to be some that kind of work. Uh, and not all of them are about an old man trying to, you know, fuck younger women, though many of them are. Most um, of them are, most especially of, most after of this them point. <laughs> most, most of them are, that's true. Uh, but not all of them. So maybe someone says like, oh, I like this one, I like that one. I think we both feel though that some conflict about Woody Allen in general, which I think gives us an opportunity, Doug, to talk about how we feel about this issue that's come up a lot. I think especially in the wake of the Me Too movement and more people being called out for things that maybe flew under the radar, people were unwilling to make public, which is, is it worth to some extent separating art from artists? And this is something that we've talked about a little bit because we have another podcast about Alejandro Jodorowsky and while we uh, maybe feel far less conflicted about him as a creator, there are people who also are at, maybe not as concerned, but similarly concerned about him as people would be about Woody Allen. So this is right. something that we've had to struggle with. Doug, how do you think about this, not just in relation to Woody Allen specifically, but in general? How do you sort through this idea that some of the art you enjoy might be made by bad people? Liam, both of us are, are nerds. I don't know if you know this. Uh, and we watch a lot of movies and we talk about movies with our friends a lot. Sure, yeah. 
And we are hitting this probably more frequently now, this idea of separating the art from the artist now more than ever before. Maybe it's because we have more knowledge about the personal lives of a lot of these stars. Maybe it's because of Me Too that has kind of thrown the door open a little bit on the terrible behavior of a lot of the people that we watch in, in the films that we watch. The, the difficulty that I have is an idea of consistency because I don't want to appear to be a hypocrite. So the idea of watching a movie where the director has done nothing wrong and the writer has done nothing wrong and the actors have done nothing wrong, but then you have some creative person involved, a producer, like say with the Harvey Weinstein or uh, some other person, that, that you can't kind of do a purity test on any film because somebody involved in these massive groups of people is going to be a piece of shit no matter what movie you're watching and that to put everything on the director or writer and actors is you're already creating an unfair standard, an impossible standard. Basically, we have to cut out three quarters of the movies that we watch in order to even be able to do this. I feel, I feel that there is some validity to that argument. The problem with that is because it's much easier if, like, if you're just talking about someone who wrote a book and it's just like, well, this guy is a piece of shit. I'm like, well, I'm never going to read this book again. There, There is an argument about, say, and this is something we're hitting here, punishing, I guess you might use the word. It, are we punishing the people who did nothing wrong by completely canceling the film and the filmmakers who are involved because they did something wrong? And I, I don't feel a lot of conflict about that, particularly when it comes to certain directors like Woody Allen, like Roman Polanski, like Victor Salva. But I, I do think that there's some some middle ground and it's all there's also some real difficulties when it comes to particularly two of those directors roman polanski and woody allen who are two beloved directors who made a lot of incredible films you know i know that you are mixed on woody allen but generally considered an incredible filmmaker who has made a lot of important work that has touched a lot of people and influenced a lot of people you know one of my favorite directors and creators is albert brooks and it would be i think fairly safe to say that albert brooks film career wouldn't exist without woody allen's film career and how much does that take away from his work to think that the person that might be a major influence of his is a piece of shit, right? And this is something that I struggle with personally. So uh, I I feel like I cannot, particularly when it comes to art like a film, uh, I cannot separate the art from the artist. I can't stop thinking about it. But this is something that you've already kind of made a comment on. That's particularly hard in the works of Woody Allen because those films almost always either have Woody Allen himself in there or a Woody Allen analog speaking the thoughts of Woody Allen. Yeah, I think for me, I only really care about this thing to the extent that it involves like a financial thing, which is maybe too capitalist of me. And if so, I apologize for that. But like, I'm concerned about making Woody Allen even more rich, although he's probably one of the richest men in the world, honestly. Um, but uh, he's got to buy all of his jazz instruments that he can play in his jazz bands. Uh, I, you know, or, or the same with Polanski, um, Victor Salva, I don't even see the appeal. Like for me, it's more like, do I punch him in the face if I ever see him in real life as opposed to watching any of his shitty movies? The thing is the Victor Salva thing kind of hits on some of our circles a little more directly, right? Because he makes horror films and genre films where, which is, uh, you know, for some reason, people (laughs) seem more willing to ignore. I'm at, uh, I'm at the point that if someone even says to me well i'm willing you know he went to jail so i'm willing to watch his movies that i don't want to be friends with that person that's not a person i want to know that exists in the world let alone him i don't want to know the people who are willing to stand with him like it's there's just nothing i i I guess the in order for there to even be a question of separating art for artists 
in my mind, the art has to be worthwhile. And I don't think his are even worth caring about. Like, it's not, it's, I don't feel like I'm missing anything. It's uh, kind of, Liam, Jeepers Creepers 3 is a uh, modern horror masterpiece. It's, this is kind of how I feel, you know, in my world, Doug, this comes up with, in relation to like, uh, like racist bands. You know, mm-hmm. there are people who love certain bands so much, they don't care if the viewpoints of the people in the band are of a certain bet. And for me, that, position in of itself is untenable because you know i I think fascism is a sort of uh uh pernicious uh, weed that if you don't if you're unwilling to smash it out then you're gonna have to live with it you know so that's even more so but even then half the time when people are making this argument i'm like but it's not good like when people oh the first screwdriver kind of rocks no it doesn't you're just an asshole like it does it's not actually good but but the thing is i have a problem with with what you're saying now liam haha boom boom i'm gonna push back against you do it which is that one of the things that i hate most and we've seen again and again especially over the last couple of years is that when someone gets canceled or someone is being exposed for reprehensible views that people try to say that their work wasn't good in the first place as if we're not then losing something because of it but i think that's kind of a very myopic view of of work right and i also think that you know somebody thinks this shit is good and that's just as important in some ways i mean i know you don't like andy hall here's the thing i think andy hall is a fucking great movie i really do and it's a problem for me because when I watch it, I can't see that greatness anymore because all I can see is this piece of shit at its core. But that greatness is was always going to be tempered in some way by some of the irritating qualities about this lead character. But like in terms of the structure, in terms of the performances, in terms of some of the throwaway lines, I really do think that I get a, I can grasp why people love this movie so much. And Manhattan as well. And Purple Rose of Cairo. And Zillig. And a lot of Woody Allen movies. But it's... So so really, it's about killing your darlings to some extent, right? I mean, it's it. I feel like it's more important to speak out against great artists who are pieces of shit than it is about someone that you just don't care about in the first place. Because otherwise, what are you even saying? It's like, well, that Screwdriver album that I didn't care for, no one should listen to that. And and because the band is a piece of shit, which obviously they are. But I mean, if if you can say, I'm not saying that you do feel this way, but if the first album is really great and other people think that, then now it's even more important to say this band is a piece of shit and you should not be listening to them because you're going to have to abandon this great piece of art that they made if you think it's a great piece of art because because by supporting it, you are supporting white supremacists. But here's where I'm going to push back against you because I think the thing that you're saying is just kind of awkward, which is like, oh, now I can only see this piece of shit when I and I can't see the greatness that is Annie Hall, I think is the issue overall, which is like, I actually 100% believe that most of the people that we're talking about have fully showed us who the fuck they are, but we didn't believe them. You know, how many jokes could Louis C.K. tell about him being a monster before we finally went like, you know, maybe he means it. Like maybe he's actually telling the truth, and we just won't hear him. And but don't you think that? But don't you think that's a problem too? Because then art no. about people who are talking about themselves being monstrous in some way that we're supposed to think that that has to be reflective of them as a person. I mean, I not not saying that Louis C.K. wasn't being revealing, and I don't. I'm not certainly not saying that Woody Allen basically hasn't been confessing to pedophilia in most of the movies he's made since Annie Hall. But I'm not. I am saying that a lot of artists don't work that way. That they get out a lot of their darker sides in their art and that doesn't mean that they're terrible people but i i don't think that it's there's a difference between something that feels to me very um 
exploratory uh, and fanciful. Like this, I'm I'm just thinking about you know my darker side and using violence as a metaphor for whatever, and just hitting the same topic again and again and again. I just I I 100 think Doug. Woody Allen fans have just been lying to themselves for a long fucking time that all of the movies have the seeds of him being a gross motherfucker. And watching this movie, I'm like, I can't believe we convinced ourselves that this dude was probably okay. Not only okay, fucking great. People think he's fucking great. And I'm like, uh, what? Why? I, I don't get it. And I actually think everyone should feel bad for liking Woody Allen, like morally <laughs> feel bad in their heart. And I feel that way about a lot of people. I mean, it, let's bring up someone else we brought up. I don't sure. actually feel that way about Polanski, that I've watched you know, a number of Polanski films before I even really – uh, uh, even before I even really understood his crime. Because when I was a kid, no one, when they were showing Rosemary's Baby, no one was like, by the way, this guy had to flee to Europe because he uh, raped a girl. Like, no one said that to me. They just were like, look, it's a scary movie. And so I got pretty familiar with a number of his films before I found out, like, oh, wait a minute. Even, like, his later stuff, when people should have been talking about, like, is it okay that we like this dude? I remember, I think my mom took me to see that Adrian Brody movie he did. The pianist, yeah. Yeah, I think we went to see that together, and she never said, by the way, this man is hiding in Europe because he raped someone. That's not – wasn't in the conversation even. Um, and, and you can make you could easily make a case that that is like Polanski's most personal movie, right? That right, does have right. his his own personal analog in it, which is something that we're talking about when regards to Woody Allen. Right, and, and, and so I think if someone wants to say like, well, there's a lot of Polanski that I think is great art, and I don't think – this crime that he committed is reflected in it. I I, I do find that compelling, and I, and I do think there are examples like that. But I think that more often than not, I'm surprised when we are really surprised. I mean, I, I think a great example to me, actually, of someone who really pulled the wool over everyone's eyes, and I don't think the shittiness is in their art, is uh, Bill Cosby. His whole entire fucking demeanor, right, was about how wholesome he was. And in fact, I wouldn't even just say his art, his persona in the world. How many people did he shame just for like wearing their pants low or occasionally dropping the end? He definitely was a holier than thou presence in the early 90s. And I find that even more upsetting in some ways than uh, someone like Woody Allen, who I think has kind of been revealing things that we should have maybe picked up on. Um, so I don't know. Maybe I'm getting lost in the weeds here a little bit. But I, when I'm thinking about the separating art from, from artists... But, but aren't you aren't you now saying exactly the opposite of what you just said, which is that you say these people always tell you who they are, but they don't always tell you who they are. I mean, yes, Bill Cosby was an asshole, and everyone kind right. of... Uh, and even you know, going back to... Eddie Murphy, uh, you know, kind of knocking Bill Cosby in the mid '80s because he had that reputation, right? But right. in his art, he certainly wasn't. <laughs> there were there weren't vague references to his difficulties with women. Let's say you, you really would have to dig. I mean, there were rumors for a long time about Bill Cosby. Don't get me wrong, but I don't see a lot of it in the work that he put out in the world. Fair. I mean, I I don't. I, I guess I wasn't trying to say always. I was just saying more often than I'm comfortable with, and then those people still get defended as hard as people who for me it's a big surprise that's i think more what i'm thinking i I don't know that it's always in the art but even when it is in the art people still bring up this separating art from artists which i find really confusing because the the issue is there it's in it's present in the thing so i don't understand it's difficult because speaking as 
a loathsome person. <laughs> now, I don't really mean that. But what, but what I mean is that there are certain people, certain celebrities and certain comedians in particular, who their persona is loathsome. And I don't know if all of them, if that reflects who they are as people all the time. But I do have to say, in that particular case, it does kind of seem like it is <laughs> often the case that they've done a lot of terrible shit. But I just, it's hard to paint with such a broad brush to say that that, that persona is all that person can be. That you can't cultivate a persona of being an asshole without being an asshole. Um, and it's, I think it's, it's difficult I think for it's, me because we're I think talking about very personal work in this case, right? I think it's more about discernment, though, because the question you have to ask yourself is, like, what kind of bums me out in the case of Woody Allen is that I think at a base level, his humor has always been anti-feminist, period. That mm-hmm. his main thing is that the, the base issues and feelings of women are a problem for him. And that's the source of the fucking jokes. And so for me, like that, all it's so essential to the thing itself that I I don't understand the feeling that like there's no way to picture him as the person who would make the decisions that he made, especially when so much of his art is also related to this idea that he has this like honestly disturbingly uncontrollable libido that every woman just has to put up with him in that sense even in the stories of childhood like it's it's always Woody Allen loves the fuck that's what he likes to say in his movies yeah and and so there's there's some part of me that like it feels very skeptical about all of that but I guess you're right I'm not certainly not saying that someone who does art about negative things in their life is necessarily a monster but i do have to say like are we always discerning about what people are telling us about themselves or not like i i, I don't know and again well I, I mean that comes down to like that 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 common phrase which is when people tell you who they are believe them right, right. but it's the problem is it's hard in art particularly with film to to know if people are saying who they are or if they're just saying things that they're interested in talking about, or even if they're being critical of the things that they're presenting, right? This is something that we've seen a lot in social media recently, sure, where people yeah. are like, can you believe that uh, Robert Denny Jr. played a character in blackface in Tropic Thunder? And she's like, yeah, we can believe it. He's mocking people for doing that exact thing that you're complaining right, about, exactly. right? And it's just like, the that level of what is satirical, what is a commentary, what is, if someone, just because someone is a main character of a movie, can they be a piece of shit? I mean, I'm even struggling that with that to a certain extent with Annie Hall, right? How much are we actually supposed to like the Alvy character in this film? I'm not 100% sure if he is supposed to be thought of as this kind of, someone that we're supposed to be able to relate to closely as a, audience but i do think that on a base level that woody allen thinks of himself as a good guy at least at this time so that sure. in it as a whole already <laughs> puts me on my heels a little bit in regards to this movie well and i also think you you know i, I to what extent is the art there also to protect the person so like you could make a strong argument that uh a lot of joss whedon's writing exists for us to not know uh mm-hmm. what a monster he was that he exactly. was like almost writing against that tendency in him because he wants to hide and so like you know i i I guess uh, i'm making arguments about i'm not trying to actually make universal arguments and 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 i'll I'll go back to something that you were kind of touching on earlier which is that um all of these things whatever the person did whether someone is accused of simply acting with bias or they're accused of a level of harassment or they're actual like a, a rapist or or something more violent in nature um 
when it comes to relating to their art, I agree with you. There is a certain amount of discernment that everyone has to have that like you having one set rule where it's like, well, I just take the art or I throw all the art away. It probably doesn't work because life is more complicated than that. But I do find it frustrating when sometimes the grayness of discernment means people act like we can have no set idea that it's, it's all personal interpretation and I can't judge anyone for anything because whatever, whatever, I don't think that's actually true. I think discernment means um, I have to make decisions. And part of this, I I think it comes across like I'm being more strict. I'm actually being less strict. I think everything we do is less real than we think it is. So like I think like assumptions we make down to even when we say like science means this, we're actually making a value call there. That's not actually – everyone always says like, well, I believe in facts. Yeah, but what do those facts mean? You're making a value call every single case. And so for me, I apply that discernment issue here. You're making a discernment call. This is what I think this person is about. This is what their art is. And I have to decide how I feel about it. It is, in, in that sense, very personal. But once you've made your decision, that decision is up for evaluation by everybody else around you. And yeah. it's up to them to decide how to react to your decision. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know that in, the, in that sense, because it is discernment, there's no law. You don't have to not be friends with someone or you don't have to fire someone or you don't have to whatever things people who are afraid of cancel culture are afraid of everyone's afraid they're going to be publicly (laughs) strung up or whatever but half the time all that really happens is a bunch of people who don't like you send you a mean tweet yeah and that's like it that's the whole fucking thing and i'm sorry if you made a decision in your discernment that you knew people weren't going to like and you're a public figure then guess what it was a public decision and you have to live with the fact that some people don't like you now it's sorry. a weird thing that to live in this this era of so-called cancel culture when people are just like shockingly forgiving if you yes. if you admit to anything people people are forgiving you'll always have people who are like you know what he said he he admitted what he did, but the thing is, people never admit what they do. And they, he said he's sorry, and people never say that they're fucking sorry until it's until they've been caught like absolutely red-handed. It's just a really weird era to be living in. But I mean, I, mean, I, I think I, I think I hear a lot as people saying like, "Well, how long do people have to say sorry for the same thing?" I think to an individual, if you have a relationship with an individual person and you've done everything you can to make amends. And then 20 years later, they're still mad at you. I get the idea that you're like, I just can't deal with this yeah. this person's anger anymore. I have to move on. <laughs> right. But if you're a public figure who lives and eats because of the public's grace towards you, the idea that every time you're in public, someone's going to say, hey, didn't you tweet something racist one time? Yeah, you have to act apologetic every single yeah. time or else get a different fucking job. Yeah. Because there are millions of people all around the world who aren't famous for money. That's a, actually a pretty uncommon way to live. And so if you have, you know, pissed people off so much that every time you show your fucking face, you got to be, you know, a little bit like, by the way, sorry about that time I said that fucked up thing or sorry about the time I did that one thing or whatever it is. Yeah, that's the burden you bear. Sorry? Like, I I, I don't understand how this become a moral thing. If, if what we were saying is we're all so mad at Aziz and Zari that we're actually going to go light him on fire, then... Guess what? I'm also concerned about cancel culture because we shouldn't be lighting anyone on fire, okay? Like, I just don't think that's a thing. But I I do think, like, okay, it's up to people to decide, like, well, I read the article. I knew what happened. I'm okay with him coming back and directing the new season of whatever that show was, Master of None or whatever. Mm -hmm. Or I'm not okay. And I, I don't know that you should mount a social media campaign to, like, destroy his life. But if you're not okay, then don't fucking watch it. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, whatever. But the issue I mean, is... I, we feel, ha- I do feel like now we're getting into 
the weeds a little bit, right? Because people could – there's a lot of people who believe that Woody Allen did nothing wrong. I and, just don't think those people are living in reality, but yes, you're right. But. Well, the thing is, so if – I think that a lot of people go see Woody Allen movies without any guilt whatsoever. The guilt that we are sort of expressing here, right? Because they don't think that he did anything wrong. And it might be in another case, maybe they wouldn't be able to watch a Roman Polanski movie because he – you know, that that's a much more – for them, clear-cut example of someone doing something wrong. So it's easy for them to make that separation. And I really am coming down to how we feel about those people as opposed to our, us ourselves. I know we've made our position clear. We can't really enjoy the work of Woody Allen because we think that he's a pedophile. Do we get upset at other people for enjoying that work, or do we get frustrated with the idea that they are not understanding why we feel the way we feel? Hmm. I, I think that's a good question, actually. My first inclination is to be a little bit judgmental, but I, I, I guess you're right that, like, perhaps there are people who, and that's not true, I guess I know people who really don't think Woody Allen did anything wrong, and so if a new Woody Allen film is coming out, they don't have a moral compunction to feel a certain way. But I just don't know that I... You also have to understand, of course, Liam, and you, I know you do, that those people who think he did nothing wrong they're thinking badly of us who think that he did do something wrong because they feel like we don't understand that Mia Farrow is kind of a piece of garbage, that we don't have an understanding of the entire uh, case against him, sure. that, that we're just we're accepting documentaries that are slanted in some way or they don't have all the facts. This is the belief that they have, so they believe that strongly, so they are judging us in the same way that you are judging them. Sure. Yeah, I, I guess that's true. Liam, I think we should take a break. We need to reset a little bit. Uh, let's come back. We're going to talk a little bit more about Annie Hall uh, in in particular, uh, and we're going to talk <laughs> a lot more specifically about Cal Kane's performance in it. Uh, we'll come back right after this. Okay. So, uh, what are you telling me? You work for Stevenson all the time, or what? No, no, no. I'm, uh, I'm in the midst of doing my thesis. On what? A political commitment in 20th century literature. You, you like New York Jewish left-wing liberal intellectual Central Park West Brandeis University with the socialist summer camps and the, the father with the Ben Sean drawings, right? And the really, you know, strike-oriented kind of... Uh, stop me before I make a complete imbecile of myself. No, that was wonderful. I love being reduced to a cultural stereotype. Right, I'm a big, you know, but for the left. Alvy Singer, a divorced Jewish comedian and misogynist, reflects on his relationship <laughs> with ex-lover Annie Hall, an aspiring nightclub singer, which ended abruptly just like his previous marriages and probably all of his relationships into the future. It's 1977's Annie Hall, uh, as I'm sure all of you know, uh, written and directed by Woody Allen, also co-written by Marshall Brickman. Um, obviously, Woody Allen stars in it. It's it's definitely like uh, a Woody Allen-focused movie. Um, Annie Hall famously played by Diane Keaton, also with Tony Roberts, Carol Kane, of course, Paul Simon in an also uncomfortable role for me, <laughs> uh, Shelley Duvall, Janet Margolin, Colleen Dewhurst, and Christopher Walken in what was for me the only uh, delightful surprise, and I've seen this movie before and had forgotten he was in it entirely. So when he showed up, I was like, oh, a, a brief moment of joy for me. Awesome. Um, there's you know a lot to talk about here i guess we should just start the way that we 
usually start with one of these, which is just sort of getting your response. I, I feel like we've already given a little bit of our thoughts, but uh, let me give you a chance to like really summarize overall. How do you feel now today about Annie Hall, but also Doug, like how have you historically felt about it be- maybe before you were so uncomfortable with Woody Allen as a, as a figure? So Annie Hall is a film that I did not appreciate for a very long time. Uh, this style of humor was not something that I had a lot of interest in as a teenager. It wasn't until probably my late teens, early 20s, when I first started to kind of read up on Woody Allen and started trying to appreciate, you know, certainly his more well-known films, Andy Hall being one of those. And I think a lot of the humor of comedies of the 1970s, it hasn't necessarily aged well because it's really pushing the the medium forward to a certain extent. And that was one of the things Woody Allen was most known for, the idea of finding humor in these uncomfortable places or in topics that people didn't talk about openly, particularly with sex. And that's something that's, that's kind of overt in this film. So it's a movie that I struggle with because I do find the Alvy Singer character very unpleasant. And not just because he's played by Woody Allen and is an analog for Woody Allen in this film, but really because he is... <sighs> He is meant to be both the person that we most relate to in this movie, but from, I don't even think from a modern perspective, he is meant to be speaking truths that to me are not truths. I think that's the easiest way to say it because I am the same age that Albie Singer is in this movie. I'm 40 years old. I'm in a long-term relationship. I'm in a marriage and watching his inability to function in the world because he has this sort of expectation of his partner's to I think I mean honestly I think he thinks that he's so fucking smart and that he's so um that he has such a, a unique perspective on the world that no one can match up to it and particularly that first bit by the way because what comes through in this movie and in a lot of his movies is that Woody Allen thinks he's the smartest person in the room always and here's the thing I don't think he's that fucking smart I don't think he has that much to say about relationships that's unique it certainly probably seemed unique in 1977 but to me it doesn't seem that unique. And and again, maybe it's because people had more license to speak about these things after Woody Allen opened these doors. But be that as it may, I don't give points for always for opening those doors uh, if the work doesn't necessarily hold up. That said, I do find the structure of the film very, very unique and the kind of hodgepodge of different influences uh, on display and the ways of kind of communicating these jokes. I still think a lot of that is really unique and fun. I love the supporting cast. Obviously, you already mentioned Christopher Walken, but there's lots of future famous faces that show up for just brief moments all throughout it. And even like the the famous, the most famous sequences like with Marshall McLuhan or when Truman Capote shows up for a very brief cameo. I mean, it, it's these are things where you can see the influence kind of reverberate in history, but I will never be able to watch Annie Hall as a successful comedy and a successful, particularly romantic comedy, because I don't, I don't in any way connect with the romance at its center. Yeah. I'm thinking about what you were saying about it being groundbreaking and it, it feels pretty emblematic to me of something that it's kind of common as sort of a phenomena of the seventies, which is sexual liberation without feminism inevitably yeah. becomes mm-hmm. patriarchy. That all we're doing is loosening the the controls we put around men who we've also convinced that their libido is all that matters in the world. Because prior to the, it should be really clear, for especially for younger people who don't know the extent of it, prior to the sexual liberation aspect of the 60s, um, 
all of social life was around the importance of men and their libidos, you know, that like that th- the entire family that your your wife was your property, you you had rights to her body, and if she wasn't willing to give you what you wanted, you could like leave her, you know, in a sense uh, for some people at least without any moral compunction despite the supposed sanctity of marriage, you know. Um then when you suddenly have a world where it's like, well, we've all decided we don't feel bad about sex anymore, that's great. I uh, I, I will 100% affirm that when I, as we've covered on the show before, you know, when I was a kid, I converted to Christianity. I bought in pretty hard to certain parts of it. Not really the politics as associated with American Christianity, but other social aspects of it. And one of those things was feeling bad about sex and sexuality. And when I let that part go, that immediate freedom is is great and the idea that the whole country not everyone obviously but a bunch of people were like wait like maybe we don't have to feel bad about fucking i get it like that is a moment of true liberation but if that's not also built into an idea that the people you want to fuck are few full humans who also deserve their own um authority and autonomy and have their own desires that are also meaningful then inevitably you're gonna probably become a piece of shit because you've denied yourself for so long now it just becomes about what you've been denying yourself without actually respecting the humanity of the other person and for a film that is dedicated to this fictional character of annie hall there's only a few moments where I feel like the film respects her as a person in any mm-hmm. way because yeah. I don't think Alvy respects her as a person and I think I think he's aware that his view of her is limited. The film is self-aware enough to say I'm fucking this up. But it's not self-aware enough to say I'm fucking this up because I don't respect women as a whole in the way I should. Instead, it's like, ah, he's he's not being smooth, he's doing this wrong, he's not really seeing the thing, whatever, whatever. And, and, and you know, inevitably, people are broken and relationships fall apart because relationships are crazy. And it's like, ah. I'm, I'm totally into the idea that human relationships can be complicated and messy things, but they're even more messy if you're a piece of shit. And I, I just think that uh, the way that, for me at least in this movie and other movies I could think of, Woody Allen explores um, aspects of what he sees as men, or at least men like him, humorously. Even as it's making fun of them, it kind of lets them off the hook because it takes what are actually pathologies that probably need to change and makes them like humorous ticks maybe or or biological yeah exactly but they're like but but it makes them like silly things that we all have to ah you know ah men you know they just don't (laughs) they just don't know and it's like well no actually they don't you don't have to be this person that you're being right now and the idea that i'm supposed to feel bad for you because you can't function in the world it doesn't work for me as an audience member and i think part of that is related to this relationship to sexuality in the film which is like again look he's being so free about sex and sexuality in a way that people were uncomfortable with before And, and i get that and i do think that that's in and of itself a good thing however a lot of it is just about him being denied what he wants without acknowledging the humanity of the various people he's interacting with. And that bummed me out hard, even if I'm not. And again, maybe that's not true. Maybe I can't see this without seeing him. But I I, I would have trouble imagining this same sort of attitude in a different movie. And it's still not bumming me out. It, it just I don't like that part of the film. That being said, 
I do think the the memory stuff where he's like walking into his own memories and interacting sure. with them, mm-hmm. I think that's interesting. Um, I always like movies that are like this, and I'm sure he was one of the people who uh, pioneered this way of telling stories where you don't need a linear narrative. The idea yeah. that like mm-hmm. A happens to B that happens to C, I don't need that actually. I think this way of telling a story is effective. Um, but a, a, a sort of a base level... I don't really find this movie that funny. And I don't just mean the parts that make me feel uncomfortable. He's telling a lot of jokes in this movie. The mm. character of Alvy, not dissimilar to, I think, real-life Woody Allen, can't help but constantly spew out jokes. It feels like he's always working on his on his tight five. But in this film, he never even gets a tight five minutes for me, Doug. Most of these jokes, <laughs> to me, in this film, and I'm not saying this is true of Woody Allen on, in all movies but watching the film this time I was really struck by like how not funny I thought it was and I couldn't <laughs> tell if that's because I just don't like him anymore or if it's like really not that funny did you find this movie to be really because this is described by many people I know as like one of the funniest movies they've ever seen and I am befuddled by that I mean it's very much a corny sense of humor right I've been watching a lot of Marx Brothers movies lately and enjoying them very much and I think maybe I was in more of a mindset to it's more of a a thing where it's like oh I can see why that's funny as opposed to ha ha I'm laughing at how funny it is I mean part of the problem of course is that a lot of the jokes in this have become uh, iconic right that you've heard them many times before right I mean like the idea of you know loving masturbation because it's sex with someone I love hey it's super clever funny line but I heard that when I was like 12 years old because it was in Annie Hall, right? So it's 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 a little difficult. Humor is one of those things which has a habit of aging badly, and this is very much a kind of humor of its time. And it's certainly the background of, of Woody Allen, you know, writing for certain comedians. It's so funny in the movie to hear him mock other comedians for not being funny when he's then saying a particularly corny line. But it's, I, I just, I have trouble holding that against it. I find the situational stuff more interesting and funny like the idea it's just like it's like a funny circumstance that he's found him in him snort him uh um uh, sneezing into the cocaine st- to me still is a very hilarious moment in this movie um and there are i, I don't want to like pick out like favorite moments that's certainly what we're not here to really to do but i do think that that structurally there's a lot of humor that uh, and like you said is a pioneering style humor for a lot of what we saw afterwards of things that i do find funny and people who are obviously very closely influenced by annie hall so to me it's very difficult to be incredibly critical of the sense of humor of this movie particularly because just because i don't find it as funny now it doesn't mean i i don't want to be critical of people who did find this very funny at the time or still find it really funny there's lots of stuff that I find funny that other people think is the worst, most ridiculous shit in the in the world, right? I mean, I still laugh at Three Stooges, so sure. Um, but it, to, to me, I just the- I guess what I'm trying to figure out is is what if if we were not in a world of knowing who Alan is, would I find this more funny? Because I I was just really surprised how not funny I found it. Um, And, you know, I've seen this movie before. It was a long time ago. Um, But certain moments, the cocaine moment, I would say, stuck out to me as like, oh, I remember that. Or um, I mean, certainly Christopher Walken talking about how he has that compulsion to pull into the other lane of traffic right before he has to drive them. I, I still find that very funny as well. Again, situational as opposed to those kind of throwaway Groucho Marx esque jokes that he just constantly peppers throughout. In fact, 
I find that a little irritating simply because it's used later in the movie when he tries to recreate a situation with a new girlfriend with that with the lobsters on the floor and he makes the comment and she's like is that a joke I don't understand it's a joke and that's supposed to be a criticism of her that she doesn't get his fucking sense of humor as opposed to him just constantly saying stupid shit because he thinks he's the funniest guy on the planet Right. I, I was going to bring that up that I have never identified with a character more than that woman who's like, what the fuck? Just get the lobsters. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, and I guess that makes me I, I think that's part of it is like a, a big chunk of this movie feels to me, whether it's I mean, a lot of this movie seems to be this weird thing where it's like I'm judging people for not liking New York while kind of admitting maybe it's weird that I like New York so much. You know what I mean? And in that right. scene, it's like, man, what an asshole. She doesn't get my jokes. But then again, there's also the underlying thing of, well, maybe my jokes aren't very funny. I don't know, whatever. But it's like, it. the way it feels to me, Doug, is that Woody Allen in this movie, and perhaps in other movies, is sort of setting up this thing like, look, there's a club of us. There's a club of us who like we feel shitty about ourselves, but we feel shitty about ourselves because we know we're better than everyone else. And we're bad at all these things, but it's because we're so smart in other ways. And we love New York and we don't understand why people don't like New York. And we go to LA, objectively a fucking paradise, and we're uncomfortable and we want to puke all the time. You know what I mean? Like th- there's this feeling of like we're in the, it, it, you know what it reminds me of? but in a way that is insulting to me is the Philadelphia thing. You know, there's a whole vibe in Philly that is sure. like, you just don't get it. You know, you don't like us, but we I don't I got to be honest uh, in my personal life. Sometimes I mock you, Liam, for, th- for the idea that you have bought into that. Feeling. Right. No, 100%. <laughs> That's why I'm so offended by it here because I do buy into that feeling for Philadelphia and I do not <laughs> buy into it for being a neurotic sex pest from New York city. And so like by, by watching this, I think because I identify with this woman who solely exists to be like, she doesn't get it. She might be right, but she doesn't get it. And I'm like, fuck, I identify with her so hard. It's like this saying of like, I wonder to what extent the buy-in for this movie is people who like like that feeling of being in on the joke. They're in on what's going on. They're part of the club. And I'm like maybe judging it to some extent because I'm like, I don't want to be in on that club. What the fuck is that? You know, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, the thing about – so I'm, I'm not going to talk very much about my wife. She wouldn't want me to talk about her on this podcast. But that she just yelled, that's right, from the other room. But the, the fact is having a partner in life – in my in my estimation, in my opinion, in my experience, it's, they're not supposed to just unblinkingly be supportive in everything you do and make you feel like you're the smartest, funniest, coolest person in the world at all times. This is what I think Woody Allen thinks a partner should do. To me, a partner in some way in your life is meant to call out your shit, right? When you're being an asshole or when you're not being funny or when you're trying to fuck her at a friend's party while you're watching a basketball game because you think you're so above it all like that's the person should be like what the fuck are you doing and when they say what the fuck are you doing they're not supposed to then be made to look like they're uptight or uncool which his partner in the movie is made to look like so to me i just don't get his vibe i don't get his perspective i think of woody allen thinks of himself as being incredibly self-aware when i think that he has has created an illusion of self-awareness right that that is not reflective of his reality just like his neurosis right his persona is is of this neurotic person but it's also combined with this superiority 
that he feels like he has over all of the people. Now, I know, Liam, that both of us, I'm sure there are aspects in our life where we have that sense of superiority. Oh, that sure. we think that we're better than certain other people. But the fact that he lords this over the people that he says that he loves, or he loves at the very least, that, to me, it, it just makes his character seem more pathetic in the movie. I mean, I'll be honest. I think me and a few people that I connect with as friends are people who feel like we have very refined and respectable taste in things that don't matter. That like what defines our interest (laughs) is how utterly uncool they are. And the fact that we've spent all this time learning about it and having deep opinions about it is proof that like we're not that cool. It would be more interesting to not care about the things that we care about. And the thing to remind yourself when it comes to that is that being a part of that club doesn't make you better than anyone else. Like I really do think that um, relationships with a city like New York for some people is like a trauma response. (laughs) Like New York traumatically imprinted itself on you and now you can't heal past it. And maybe that's true with me of Philadelphia. I don't know. But, uh, but I honestly, I have no, I have no way to relate to this like large American city, like, like, uh, sure. Competition, right? I mean, not just because I'm in Canada, but the fact is, I, you know, I didn't even grow up close to a small city. So to me, sure. when I hear this New York, LA thing, it's, it seems a overtly pretentious. But also, it's like you have a whole fucking country, and I know that the show business world only exists between those two places. But like when he talks about how he couldn't live in the country for a variety of different reasons, it's just like if you look. You love New York. We get it at this point, Woody Allen. We understand. But it's, you his feel- whole, but it's his whole personality. And I would suggest, and I wonder if you feel this is true, I think part of the appeal of this movie and a number of his movies is the New York thing. Oh, that, absolutely. Like, this idea of like Woody Allen is New York. And let's be clear. While he's making these fucking movies, right, he's showing you one aspect of what New York is, often a very kind of privileged aspect, despite his, you know, always being like, well, originally I was in this poor place in Brooklyn, but now I'm in Manhattan with all these respectable rich people. Yeah, yeah. And never being like, well, yeah, but there are parts of Manhattan that are actually war zones. Like, yeah. it's it's not even just Manhattan versus the other boroughs, right? It's just these are the parts of Manhattan that I think are worth filming and those other parts of Manhattan can just get fucked because I don't actually care about them. You know, it's it's the same with this idea of like, well, you know, he's so charitable, he gives all this money in New York to very specific rich people, white New York things. There aren't a lot of people of color from the Bronx being like, if it wasn't for fucking Woody Allen, my life would be a piece of shit. Like, yeah. th- there's a whole other New York. And that's one of the things, honestly, Doug, that always got on my nerves about about people from New York who would come to me and talk about how much better New York is than everywhere else in the world was how often their version of New York was like a smaller version. Like if you grew up in an actual like, because I will say it is one of the most diverse places in the fucking world. That's just a fact. Mm -hmm. If you grew up in one of those diverse pockets of New York and you love the city for that diversity, there's a part of me that's like respect. You know, even if I don't love that city, respect, because you're right, that aspect of that city is fucking magic. But people who grew up privileged on, like, the Upper West Side or whatever, who are like, nowhere else in the world matters. How could you say that? The world is so interesting. And what's great about your city is that the world dropped members of its various interesting places in your city. So if you would walk 
just a few blocks out of your fucking way, you could experience part of the world you're missing in your goddamn apartment in the middle of wherever. So I don't want to go on a huge rant about the things I don't (laughs) like about some New York. And again, it's some, right? That's part of the beauty of New York. Over 8 million people, there's going to be some of the best and worst people in the world in that fucking city because it's so many people. My issue is when people go, Woody Allen's version of New York is the only New York that matters. And it, it's, it, I feel like it's so disrespectful to a place that I don't even have a personal attachment to. I like going there. I've had fun yeah. going there. But For it a person who's been obscenely wealthy since before we were either of us were born. Yeah. It just seems crazy to me, this feeling that like like he actually represents the spirit of the city when it, so much of that city is left out of, uh, I, again, not all, but a lot of his, his narratives. I do think a lot of the romance of New York City is something that was born out of Woody Allen's work, right? Sure. I mean, that is something that the, the it's kind of a uh, a chicken egg situation where you're right. People have this myopic and very kind of limited view of what New York is because of the way it's been presented in the most New York director's movie. Sure. Uh, and, but also, the, they wouldn't even have that interest in the first place if it wasn't for how New York is presented in his movies, right? There's a reason that him, you know, Woody Allen and Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola made a a, a, a a film, an anthology film of New York stories because they are the directors that are, actually, I don't even think Coppola is that necessarily that connected with it, but certainly they're directors that are very much associated with the both the good and bad of New York. The Coppola in New York thing is so funny to me because he owns all this property in San Francisco, right? He's got his restaurant out there. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Whatever, whatever. But I do think people have made that suggestion to me, like, well, Coppola in New York. I'm like, "Uh, really? I mean, Scorsese certainly, right? But Scorsese's willing to – I mean, he he has certainly – it's hard to think of the New York of Taxi Driver and the New York of Annie Hall being the same New York. Well, and I also will say that uh, uh, you could make a case, at least in the, when it comes to film, that Scorsese is interested in other people's perspectives. Yeah, yeah. He's interested in a, in, a, in a diverse amount of voices. That doesn't change his voice. He's always going to be his director. But I think for someone who supports so many different international directors, it's because he's interested in a variety of perspectives, and that's part of the appeal of New York for him. So I don't want to get on a whole thing just about New York per se. <laughs> like I feel like we've already spent enough time on it. But I think it is worth thinking about because I, I wonder to what extent that is an essential component of the appeal of this movie is his New York, his world of 40-something sing- – I mean – how many people really like romanticize the idea of being a 40 something single person in a city because of a film like Annie Hall or mm-hmm. whatever else, you know, Manhattan, whatever, whatever that like, there's this idea that like, yeah, there's all these like happening people. And just because they are actually old enough that they could like be boring. They're not. Cause they're in New York city as right. if there aren't, millions of people in New York who just have a normal home and aren't out doing hip shit in the middle of the week. Like that's actually, again, they're not going to their jazz club in the evening and their clarinet. (laughs) So again, I, you know, I didn't want to make it about New York for that. I just mean to the extent that like, I think you're right. It's, it's not just that people have been sold a version of New York because of his films, but it's because of that version of New York that sometimes I think they love his film so much. Right. And that's both for New Yorkers who want to believe that is the New York that they're living in in, in whatever year, you know, or for people from far away who like have this vision, like if I go to New York, I'll be one of those people, you know? And of course that's not real. It wasn't real then. It's not real now, you know? I mean, again, part of that is, is, is his is why people defend him, right? Is because right. his persona is connected to not just the art that they 
take in, but also the place in which they live and maybe the romanticization that they have of that place comes from the fact that they, they, that started in some way from his movies. So now not only does it feel like you're being attacked for the things that you like, but also for the place that you live, because I mean, in, in the eyes of many people, Woody Allen in New York, you can't separate the two things. That's crazy to me, but yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, okay. We could spend a lot more time sort of hashing out the things that we, you know, maybe still think are pretty good about the movie or the things that we think are, you know, despicable about the movie. And we could even spend the rest of the show trying to convince people if they haven't seen it to not see it. However, <laughs> that's not actually what this podcast is about. It's about Carol Kane. And I think the reason it was still worth talking about this, despite a deep feeling that we could have skipped it, I do think it is a very important film. And it's one that she brings up again and again. Is like, yeah, there was something we've, we've discussed this briefly before, but there's a, there's something about her Oscar nominated performance that actually limited her options as an actress, and and for whatever reason, this film changed some of that for her. Yeah. How do you feel about Carol Kane in Annie Hall? Well, I like that she's exactly what the other uh, partners that we see with Woody Allen are not from the beginning, which is that she pushes back on this this box that he tries to put her in. He tries to, you know, he comes up with this list of things that he thinks that she is from the moment that he meets her. And she's and she's like, like, what the fuck? And later when he's when they're trying to have sex and all he can do is talk about the Kennedy assassination. I, I like that all of that makes him look like an idiot as opposed to her looking weak in any way. And I do think that the strength of that character, even though it's a very small part in the context of the movie as a whole, is one of the reasons that people remembered her in this movie. And it's one of the reasons that people thought, you know, it's kind of funny. Her character isn't very funny in the movie. It's not like she has a lot of hilarious lines. Sure. But the very fact that she was associated with this movie that it was considered and still is considered by many as one of the greatest comedies ever made, but also a movie that was considered, you know, one of the greatest movies of that year that many, many people saw, that it was a linchpin role for her and uh, it put her in the uh in, in front of people in a way that hester street had the way that that had um pigeonholed her as a certain kind of actress it opened up that perspective so people could see her as more even if what they saw her as was not as a comedic actress but just as a supporting player that could do more than uh you know be in bit parts uh, in, in roles as um, at kind of meek immigrants and things like that. What we're seeing here is kind of an expansion of how people saw her as a performer. And I think that a lot of the comedic roles that we will see, particularly in the 1980s and, and beyond, it's still kind of that the launch point is Annie Hall, even if the role that she actually has in the movie isn't like any of those roles that we'll see later. I, I like her in the film. I think it's a very small role. And... Yeah. My feeling is one of my goals in this podcast, which I will not reach, but I'm, I'm going to make <laughs> it my goal, is to prove her and everyone else wrong that this movie does not actually matter and that it was not that important because I'm sure there was other things she did that mattered more. Now, I'm probably wrong. I think because this film was so popular, it had to be part of the zeitgeist that got her other work and you know sort of turned her career around in a way. But I don't want that to be true because to me, it's a credibility thing, right? I mean, that's the thing you would think that being being nominated for an Academy Award would be all the credibility you need. But that's we know from history that that's not the case. And we know from her interviews that she said she struggled after the Academy Award nomination for Hester Street. So in this case, I mean, this was about the idea of putting her in with, again, hip New York people that 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 allowed her to have the credibility to get more 
diverse roles. She is supposed to be, I guess, his first wife in the film. But right. you don't get a lot. All you really get a sense of is how they met and the fact that he was, I guess, briefly obsessed with the Kennedy assassination to the point where it destroyed their sex life and that ended their marriage. Well, I think the part of what that scene also does is suggest that like he's a part of um, civil society, but he's not really that invested in what's going on. You know, like <laughs> yeah. he could be a, a, at this fundraiser, but he doesn't seem to be too like it, concerned. Um, I guess, but then you find out later that he has buttons for you know basically every against every Republican politician for the past like. <laughs> 30 years. But it's a gimmick, right? He's making fun of that aspect of who he is. And and if you are identifying with it, you're also the butt of the joke to some extent. But I guess mm. that's true of most of the things, which is all like, hey, this is funny that I'm like this, whatever, whatever. Anyways, <laughs> um, I, I will say like, uh, I, I get the idea that in a few of the things we watched leading up to this movie, she has been a bit uh, pigeonholed, you know? And, and um so, like, the idea that at least this person is a different kind of person than maybe we've seen before. But I mean, there's... it is unbelievable to think that, I mean, Harry and Walter go to New York, which is our last film, right? I mean, she's in that almost not at all. Right, right. I mean, it, I mean, it shows that even, like, what, a year away removed from Hester Street, that her career was not exactly going into a increasingly large roles. Still, I again, I'm, I, I very much feel like um, I get why she she and everyone else gives so much credit to this, but I really, I really want there to be some other performance that helped her get to, to grow. Anyways, that's my feeling on it. That's our feelings on Annie Hall. Let's, we talked about Woody Allen. That's your story and you're sticking to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, again, I'm, I'm not actually saying that like everyone's wrong. I just really want everyone to be wrong. So I'm going to try to see if I can make a case. And I, you know, if I can't, that's fine. I don't care. Um, Hey Doug, what are we what are we covering on the next episode of this very same podcast? Well, actually, before we get to that, Liam, I just want to bring. Oh up yes, that, thank you. I forgot. Uh, the day that we're releasing this episode, the day before this, so it's already too late to, late to listen to it live on KUNM, uh, the radio station on KUNM's radio theater. Carol Kane is going to star in Aftermath, two short Middle Eastern plays, Scraps and Things. Uh, which I'm hoping will be available online afterwards. If it is, if it's available at the time this episode gets published, I'll uh, put a link in our show notes so people can check out Aftermath short Middle Eastern plays as voiced by Carol Kane. Uh, but Liam, on our next episode, I'm actually super excited about this, uh, is 1977's Valentino, directed by the great Ken Russell. So excited. I love Ken Russell, and this is one of his movies I haven't gotten to see yet, so I'm really excited to check it out. Yeah, absolutely. And and what an odd, honestly, what an odd collaborator to think uh, of Carol Kane working with, but just another of these kind of unbelievable talents that she had worked with from the beginning of her career. You know, I was reading an interview with her about Annie Hall, and she was mentioning, it's like, thinking back on it, right? Just the, 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 the scope of these directors, like Mike Nichols, like Joan Micklin-Silver, like, you know, with Dog Day Afternoon, we've already talked about, like, right from the bat, all of these iconic directors, all these iconic movies, and this is just another one. Ken Russell's Valentino on the next episode of Praising Kane. Well, uh, we really appreciate everyone listening. Hopefully you were able to stick with us, and hopefully our, um, you know, kind of convoluted uh, exploration of what our 
obviously difficult issues wasn't uh, too frustrating. And, and maybe it helped you think through how you feel, not just about Woody Allen, but about uh, a variety of people, unfortunately, who have problematic legacies because of who they are and, and what they've done in the world. Uh, but we just really appreciate you sticking with us, checking out uh, what we had to say about this movie and about um, about this issue. Uh, if you are interested in more of uh, this show, you can find us over at cinepunks.com where you'll find our latest episodes as well as a family of podcasts uh, and, and their episodes. Also writing, merch, our Patreon, a bunch of stuff. So head on over to cinepunx.com. Doug, uh, we also have our own website. Is that correct? Yeah, you can head over to cinemasmorgasbord.com, check out all of our previous episodes. You can subscribe to our show there or uh, leave us feedback if you'd like. If you have any feedback on this show in particular, yeah, just email us, send us a message through social media. We're happy to hear it. That said, if your feedback is meant to be just a general defense of Woody Allen, you might as well keep it to yourself. It's not that I'm unwilling to hear any perspective on that, but believe me, uh, it's not something. It, don't don't um, misinterpret our uh, general lightness with the idea that we don't know what we're talking about. Um, and But uh, please, yes, leave us reviews on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, and uh, check out our other shows. You can ch- find us on social media, uh, at Cinema Smorg on Twitter, at S-M-O-R-G. You can also look up Cinema Smorgasbord on Facebook as well. You can also find both Liam and myself on Twitter. He's there at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. And I'm there at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we really appreciate it. And we just hope you have a very good evening.